Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Long hot days in the shade of some big old tree. This week we've got Anna Karakan from Australia who's coming to talk to us about everything Australian bees. Hooray! <laughs> Hello Esther and thank you for inviting me to talk about all things bees and beekeeping. So lovely that you've come all the way from Australia to be on the Queen Bees podcast. And it's, it's so it's brilliant. springtime in Australia. Yeah, God, it's amazing. I just... It's just like magic, isn't it? The world, how it can be different on one side than to the other. It's so gloomy and rainy here and just like rain, rain, rain. Oh, well, I think we're sharing a bit of the same weather, to be honest. We've had a very, very wet spring where I am here. It feels like late winter rather than late spring. And where I am in Western Victoria, about two hours west of Melbourne, in southeastern Australia, it has been very soggy and very gloomy, and the bees are not loving it. So the bees are just sort of like, you know, getting the bikinis ready on the ironing board and doing a bit of prep work for the spring. Yes, they're they're having to work on their fake tans. Yeah, of course. Indoors. There's no going out and sunning their little legs in the sunshine. They're still very much in their beanies and cardigans at the moment. Yeah. Oh, bless them. Yeah. But, you know, it's so nice to sort of get straight into it. But please, Anna, can you introduce yourselves to us and um, tell us who you are and how you got into this lovely, wonderful world of beekeeping? Well, I am Dr. Anna Karukin, and the doctor bit is courtesy of me being a total tree geek and plant nerd earlier in life and studying for a PhD. So I'm really a tree geek in my heart, but mm-hmm. I have this long-standing love of nature and animals and plants and grew up on a, a small acreage of land and had that rather idyllic childhood of, you know, pet lambs and a pet chicken and my dad had some beehives. And I guess unwittingly I was seduced by the bees and about 10 years ago decided that perhaps I would like to have my own beehive. As a kid, had you been out beekeeping with him then? So that, no. I know. Oh, wow. No. no, it wasn't something that really was encouraged. <laughs> I guess you, you couldn't really get kid-sized bee suits back then either. So what did he say when you said, Dad, I am going to be a beekeeper? He's like, are you sure you really want to get a hive? They're a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> which, which they, which I think is probably the right answer because they don't look after themselves mm-hmm. and there is a lot to learn and not really a thing amongst women, I guess, mm-hmm. at that time that I think spurred me on even more that I wanted to get hive. So I did lots and lots of reading and eventually a hive arrived on the back of Dad's ute. <laughs> and the rest is kind of, you know, one hive became two, became four, became six. And then the hobby was getting a little bit out of hand 
but I just I just loved the honey is amazing. Yeah. And oh my god, it um, really is. It, oh, a jar has made it to you, hasn't it? Yeah, still got half of it left because it really is my most treasured honey. It's so delicious. And it's funny because since you sent it to me, it's from the volcanic plains of Victoria. I now, because of this podcast, and I've learned so much more about honey, I actually identified some of the flavours myself. And I wanted to ask you, um, has it got eucalyptus in it? It probably does have a component of eucalyptus and the most likely species is sugar gum, which is native more so across in South Australia, but grows really well here and is an excellent producer of nectar for bees in late summer through into the start of autumn. So there would be some sugar gum in that honey. Could you identify any other flavours in there? The only flavour that I could identify, I mean, I'm not an expert or a honey sommelier or anything, but it's got such a sort of caramel sort of flavour. That's what made me think it was the eucalyptus. And so, you know, it's like every chef's dream, isn't it? The eucalyptus honey. And um, that's the main flavour that I could sort of tell. But maybe that was like you say, it's from another plant that's a bit like it. I mean, I don't know. But one of the ladies, Paula Carnell, and also, you know, um, the lady who actually told me all about you, Sarah Wyndham Lewis, and she showed, her and Paula showed me how to taste honey. And so I did it yesterday with your lovely uh, Buka Barong honey, and I put a teaspoon into a wine glass and then stirred it round and then sniffed the flavours and then... And the aroma. Yeah, and before yeah. before I came online, my friend popped round and I said, look, I've got this honey, it's my really special one, and I did it with her and she was like, oh, my God, it's so nice, it's so caramelly and delicious. So, yeah. A lot of the honey that is purchased for people's, you know, breakfast tables and things mm-hmm. in Australia is predominantly different species of eucalyptus and it can be quite a bold flavour. But mm-hmm. I don't know whether you identified it in my bees honey, but quite a lot of the hives will make a honey that has an almost creme caramel kind of a flavour to it. Almost yeah. Like a buttery brulee. Yeah, definitely. That buttery flavor. brulee, yeah. Yeah. And the the consistency will thicken over time to quite a smooth, creamy. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that would be from quite a lot of clover flowers. Oh, I'm mixing them now as you're talking. Yes, so you can identify the clover. As I'm stirring it now, Anna, it's like literally turning to like Is a caramel. And going paler. Yeah, it's going paler. And, oh, my God, it's so, it smells so nice. You know, it's just like a treat. I'm going to try it now. Yes. Mm. (laughs) Oh, it's so delicious. But Mm. it's pretty pungent. There's so many delicious flavours, like nothing you can get in the UK. I remember when I bought some honey off you and it was really difficult to like all organise and everything, but I feel a bit bad. I hope you're not going to get in an unindated with people <laughs> wanting to buy it because I know it was such a pain. You know, in the UK, you probably heard about the small 
pockets of beekeepers that are raising the black bee, which was the traditional bee for the UK. And I was just thinking, I know we've all got the Apis mellifera, the Italian honeybee. And what's the, so what, who are your local bees and how do you get on with them? Yes. <laughs> well, we, we do have, um, we have lots and lots of Australian native bees, which are, in the main, not used for honey, except for a couple of species of little stingless bees that oh, yeah. are more, more suited to the tropics and the warm temperate areas, and yeah. they'll produce quite um, modest amounts of honey. Are you a beekeeper if you keep stingless bees, or is there another name for, for people who keep stingless bees? Oh, yes, you're a meliponist as opposed to an apiarist. Meliponini are the native stingless bees. Sounds like you're in sort of an ice cream maker or something, doesn't it? It's very, yes. very nice. I like it. It's very romantic. And all oh, the stingless bees are so cute because they don't sting, do they? They do bite, though. I know that, don't they? I think they feel a bit like you've got these, you know, being attacked by slightly biting midges because mm. they're quite small, much smaller than a, a honeybee, almost about the size of small flies. Wow. They're quite little. Oh. To the point that they can sort of get up your nose and things if you Ooh. open a hive. They can kind of come out in a bit of a cloud and just kind of get a bit clingy and buzzy and, you know, sometimes you can just breathe one in. Um. <laughs> one way to ingest the honey, isn't it, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like if you were to get back to the native bee then, so so they're all saying now that if we keep doing this sustainable beekeeping and we just, instead of buying in bees and buying in these queens, we just catch the bees that we can get, then eventually we'll get back to our own See, you know, which can survive the seasons that we've got here. And obviously your weather's really sort of harsh, isn't it? And you've got all these things. So I wonder what that would be or, you know, um, I, it's, a, it's a big question, isn't it, at the it moment? Is. Everyone's saying, I went to do a talk and this guy was saying, yeah, but what is the native bee? It sounded a bit like, um, you know, in these times, it was a bit like, oh, that sounds a bit like racist or something. But <laughs> it was a bit like... Yes, and, and what were the... The stock that were brought out 200 years ago, actually, this year is 200 years since honeybees were first brought to Australia. Oh, I see. I didn't yeah. know about that. Yeah. So there was no honeybees there before then? No Apis mellifera. No. So who was there then? So over 2,000 native bee species, yeah. which is quite a lot, and more yeah. still to be discovered. We've, we've got a lot of native bees that we don't know officially yet. And so those bees would have been brought from England, I imagine. Yeah. God, they had a long journey, didn't they? Yes, I don't know how they survived the whole way or how many didn't make it. And most of the bees you see living in the wild tend to be the darker bees in, in this cool temperate climate where I am anyway. And they hate the wet, don't they? They really do. And how are they managing that? I mean, how's the Varroa over there? Yeah, great question. It's um, um, for your listeners who may have been following along, the Varroa mite was discovered at Newcastle on the New South Wales coast back in July, I believe it was. And at the moment, it's still in what's called an eradication phase. So the next steps are to work backwards from that known edge of the extent of the spread, destroying hives 
as they work towards back towards the middle and to commence baiting of wild apis mellifera. Mm-hmm. And that has to be done in such a way, in a supervised and really managed way so that no other off-target species are killed so that, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have perhaps native honeybees oh, being attracted yeah. to the baits and things. And it, on top of all that, it, it's obviously a really challenging time for the staff because they've had, you know, a couple of bouts of quite bad flooding through parts of eastern New South Wales and into the oh central gosh. west. And the detections were made just on the cusp of swarm season beginning in their spring. Their spring starts, you know, a little bit earlier than down here. It's just that bit warmer. And so, you know, any wild hives that could potentially swarm before they're controlled, you know, one could become two, could become four. Yeah. So it's going to be quite some months of ongoing work still, but they're hopeful that, you know, at least for this incursion, that will be the end of varroa mite. It's a whole thing, isn't it, that I suppose we've been dealing with it for a long time and there's so many mixed views, as you know. And, I mean, I haven't treated my bees this year just because, I don't know, some colonies seem to get through with Varroa and then they swarm and then they're okay. You know, some colonies, you treat them and they still die of Varroa. So I think really it is. it seems to be better to sort of just keep you know, these strong colonies that are managing it, you know, have got more hygienic ways, you know, that they, they can sort of manage yeah. it. Because, you know, it's hard, all these chemicals as well. That was something else I was going to say, you know, like, you know, what are the things that bees face in, in Australia? I mean, obviously the weather and, you know, but, you know, we've had a lot of diseases because of varroa. I suppose we've had more European fowl brood, you know, that's then depleted the colonies. And, the, you know, in the old days, you didn't have to kill your bees if they got European fowl brood. You just do a shook swarm. But now you do have to kill them. I don't know. When I think about Australia and bees and I think, oh, all the bees are having such a nice time out there. <laughs> and they're like, you know, world without varroa and it must be really yeah. good. But I mean, I know there's a lot of climate issues going on and stuff. Yeah, natural disasters are certainly, um, or do we even call them natural disasters anymore? Climate-driven, revved up, much more severe natural disasters, flooding, and fire are probably the main two that would directly either directly affect beekeepers hives or the forage on which they depend small hive beetle is becoming a bigger issue in All right areas where it didn't used to be so it you know it thrived in the in the warmer milder climates but now even here in southern victoria it's commonplace and it's not dying out over winter like it sometimes did so now we have small hive beetle in my area we haven't got that here but you know it is in europe is it the little scorpion that eats the hive beetle there's like a little natural scorpion that eats it we don't have the natural scorpion i don't believe we just have to use physical um (laughs) barriers (laughs) i'll get you (laughs) tweezers and nab them all and it's one of those things where it's really imperative that you keep your hive well tight with bees and the colony yeah. quite strong and that the space the bees have to manage is not over and above what they can keep under control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a stressed hive or a hive where there's been a super added too quickly or, t- you know, too much space 
on the anticipation that, you know, summer is around the corner, but it turns out that winter's dragging on a bit longer. Those sort of situations are where the bees can get overrun by something like hive beetle. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I've been learning a lot about honey and, you know, obviously your honey and, you know, all the different types of honey that you can get and how so many of them have got all these wonderful medicinal properties. Have you got a favorite honey that you really love? Ooh, without wanting to sound, you know, very plain, I do love clover honey for its subtleness. Yeah. It, it has this beautiful, it's very light coloured, the texture as it naturally caramelises is very smooth and it's got this lovely bright sort of aroma and that, that's just a lovely all-round honey. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, I love those really robust dark honeys that are almost savoury. They're mm-hmm. not not like a really sugary sweetness. Like the chestnut and, and things like that. Oh, I've not tried chestnut honey. Oh, the sweet right. chestnut. That's the one that's very dark. Or the oak, the whole oak. Ooh. What what sort of trees get do you have that make dark so honey? We just don't have enough of those species to produce marketable quantities of honey my bees have had access to tilia trees the linden or lime oh yeah that's good which makes yeah that has quite a little medicinal zing to it in the Mm. flavor but comparable i would think in that flavor profile and i just love them and for many people it's a ooh, i don't like that honey or it's a i love that would be leatherwood from a species of large shrub slash small tree in Tasmania. Wow. And it's one of their premium honey products and it has a slightly medicinal undertone to it, but more than that, it's got this warmth to it and a lack of upfront full-on sweetness that, you know, people usually associate with honey. It's very warm. It's very dark. And I highly recommend if you can try some leatherwood honey that you do. Oh, my word. I don't know whether we've got any leatherwood trees here. I don't ever have. No, I don't think you would have. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah Wyndham-Lewis might have some leatherwood in her. Oh, yeah, she's got everything in that cellar. big bunny fridge of hers. She's got every yes. honey under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she would have some. Another honey that I quite like, and I have had some here in Australia because there are some crops where the bees have access to but I know it's quite big in America 
is buckwheat honey. Oh yeah, that's very nice. Yes. Yeah. So the arm is it? Do they say it's the armpit of honeys? I think that's what some sommeliers say. It's a bit sweaty. It does have a very unusual aroma. It, it's a bit like some of the honeys that come from various plants in the Asteraceae family, the daisy family. And you can open the lid on the honey, particularly if it's a raw or cold extracted honey and it's still quite aromatic. You can open it and you're like, wet dog, definite wet dog. Yeah. Or is it wet sheep? Or is it, or is it wet sock? But there's yeah. that kind of, And the, the flavour of the honey is amazing, but sometimes people can't get past that smell and they're like, oh, my honey's off. And you're like, no, no. That is the species that the bees have chosen to visit and they've brought it home and they've turned it into honey. It must be great. It, jar. it must be great, you know, because you've got your botanist, you know, it must be really interesting. I mean, I, you know, I obviously I know a little bit about plants and I'm learning so much more doing this. But um, when you're a botanist, you know, linking the two worlds together and, and you know, now we know so much more, don't we, about you know, bees even getting things from the soil and then there's the mycelium and, and you know, all these things together with the trees. And, you know, you must have a field day. You must be, oh, oh, must be great for it, you. It is so much fun. And whilst botanically speaking in, in most of the agricultural areas where I live, there's not a huge diversity mm-hmm. of plants even in the various native species that are planted for shelter and shade for stock, you know, there's probably no more than a dozen species that are commonly used because there's seed that can be easily collected and grown by various plant nurseries that specialise in these revegetation projects. And they're proven to grow. You know, the farmer's not going to necessarily be too keen on trying maybe something that did once grow here that might have been lost to land clearing. Mm-hmm. But it might need, you know, just that little bit of extra help or something done to the soil or whatever to really make it thrive and survive. They'd be like, no, we'll go with the tried and true, trustworthy species of eucalyptus, acacia, the different wattles are commonly used in um shelter belt plantings which offer no nectar to bees but are a pollen source so they're wind pollinated they're the little yellow pom-pom flowers that are you know very much your Australian um, flora and then there'll be some tea trees commonly planted which are related to manuka yeah not manuka is not really commonly planted around here but various other species of leptospermum Ah, and the bees love those. And then you'll have maybe people will plant calistamin, which is a commonly called bottle brush, and the flower heads literally look like something you'd clean out at your kitchen sink to clean out a bottle. And, and is it with a red? Is the flower red. red? Yeah, bright red. It's often red. Sometimes yeah, my neighbour across the road has got one. It's on a south-facing ah. um, road, you know, and it's really good. It's amazing. Yes. Bees love it. They do, and they're covered in flowers because a lot of them are cultivars, you know, they've been bred for ornamental garden purposes. So they, you know, usually have way more flowers than anything you'd see in the wild. And the bees really like those. 
Uh, One question I wanted to ask, because I went to Australia um, to do um, a Coffee Mate advert, actually, when I was about 27, and we went to Silverton in the outback, and it was quite amazing, really, and um, beautiful. And I went to like an Aboriginal exhibition in Sydney at the time and I bought a little painting and I was just thinking, is there any information about the First Nation people and what honey they used? Yeah. Now I'm probably talking a little bit beyond my area of expertise. You can make it up if you like, just a little bit, yeah. the, um, The native stingless bees or their honey is often termed sugar bag by the First Nations peoples. So they do have a documented history of using that in, you know, I'm assuming for consumption, possibly for medicinal purposes. I'm not entirely sure. Sugar bag. I'm I'm only assuming that there's many thousands of years of connection between those bees and First Nations peoples. When I went to Australia, I had such an amazing time, you know, when I went to the Barrier Reef and I went into the rainforest and... You know, I met kangaroos and all sorts of little amazing creatures. And my favourite animal that I met was a bandicoot. Because we've been revegetating our property from what was pretty much cleared farmland into something a little bit more ecological, we now have a mob of kangaroos that graze in the paddock and they have some of them have little joeys in their pouches. And we have an echidna or two that we see occasionally. What are um, they? It's like a hedgehog, but it's not a hedgehog. It's a little Is it a marsupial? Mm. Oh, wow. And we have the occasional snake and koalas. What and about duckbill platypus? No, because we don't have a river. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Which is the volcanic crater lakes. But near where my parents live, which is further west from here, they're near a river and they have platypus in their river. Wow. And they're just amazing. So funny, isn't it? But those yeah. little bandicoots with those teeny tiny little pouches. Oh, they're Ooh. tiny. And then you've got like the little hopping mice that live in the desert and they've got a slightly feathery tail. The whole thing's probably about 10 centimetres tall and yet they have pouches that they have. They don't keep the young in the pouch for very long. They but... keep bees in there maybe, little pet bees. Yeah. <laughs> Stingless bees. Stingless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, honestly, Anna, thank you. That was just so interesting. It was so oh, good. Thank you, Esther. It's been just a delight chatting. I feel like we could literally just, you know, make a cup of tea, pop some piece of toast on oh, with some goodness. lovely honey and just talk. We really could, you know. It's like such a shame that you're on the other side of the world. I really, I'll come and visit you when I do another advert. Absolutely. <laughs> that oh. would be delightful. I have a spare bee suit. You can come out and Ooh, work yeah. on some hives with me. Yeah, well, I don't want to bring mine in case it's got a Varoma trapped in the pocket. No, no that's it. Yeah. I have to fumigate you at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> Queen Bees is written and created by Esther Coles and Jane Horrocks. It is produced by Claire Broughton and Andy Goddard and partly recorded at the Hives on my allotment near Crouch End in London. Our title music is Sweet Nothing by Amy Mae Ellis and Will Cookson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Queen Bees Pod for pictures and videos from the Hive. 
Queen Bees is a hat trick podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.